Hi, everyone. My name is Michelle from the Table in Uniontown. Thanks for tuning in to our podcast this week. We're happy you're here. This is the live recording from this Sunday's sermon. We're currently in our sermon series, Start Spreading the News, where we discuss the importance of evangelism. We hope that as you listen, you'll more deeply understand the truth of God's word and how much he loves you. Let's jump in. Good morning. We are in week five of our six-week sermon on evangelism called Start Spreading the News. And this morning, uh, we are talking about hospitality a little bit. And so the first reading this morning, there will be uh, another one later in the, in the message, is from Luke 19. Uh, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, I'll give you a moment. If you don't have a Bible, it's on the screen behind me. And as always, uh, if you don't have a Bible at all or one you understand, we'd love to give you one. Uh, after the service, come see me. I'd love to put one in your hands. And so this, um, this text, Luke 19, is one that we read at the beginning of this series. It's probably the most read text in this church so far. If we had a statistician, they would probably be able to verify that. Uh, we read it with our students the last time we met, too. And uh, so I've heard this familiar story often lately, but it's a good one, and it tells us a lot about the heart of Jesus. So Luke 19, 1 through 10 this morning. He entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able because of the crowd, since he was a short man. So running ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus, since he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. So he quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. All who saw it began to complain. He's gone to stay with a sinful man. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, I'll give, you half of my pos- I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord. And if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Today salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. So long ago, uh, I I believe like the the famous way of putting it is a long, long time ago in a galaxy far away to to match the cupcakes that you may have ate for breakfast this morning, thanks to the Martins. Um, But a long time ago, we decided to plant a church. Welcome. It was November 7th, 2021. That was our launch Sunday. That was the first Sunday of our church plant, and so our second birthday was just a few weeks ago, and we decided to plant this church, and, and when you decide to start something new, a new church, you have to decide what kind of church are we going to be together? What is the mission or the vision, the, the sort of what we're going to be about, and how we want to be about it, how we want to accomplish it? What values are we going to center our life around? And and we're talking about one of those core values in this series. Christians, spread, Christians, Christians share the gospel, right? And so we believe that Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, is succinctly put the mission statement of Jesus. And so we, as a church, want to be about what Jesus is about, and we want to join him in his mission to seek and save the lost. That's our mission statement. We're not so arrogant Uh, or foolish to think that other churches aren't about the same thing, even if their mission statements aren't quite as on the nose as reciting Luke 19.10. We just decided to do it that way. Maybe you have a less creative pastor than other churches. 
And it was such a, a lofty mission statement. We want to join Jesus in his mission to seek and save the lost. We had to ask the obvious question, and that's the question of vision. How are we going to accomplish that? How are we going to do that? How would we live in a way where this mission was sort of ever before us? If the mission statement is the what we're about, then the vision statement is how we will live it out. And so then we turn to this text, which is Luke 7, 31 through 50. We, we actually just take a small part in the middle, but I want to read the whole thing. And it says this. This is Luke 7, 31 through 50. If, you're, if you want, you can frantically turn in your Bible to get there. To what then should I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to each other. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't weep. For John the Baptist did not come eating bread or drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would know what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She is a sinner." Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more? You've judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she, with her, te- with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So we went specifically to Luke 7, 34 and 35 because we see this as how Jesus went about accomplishing his mission. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And you called him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I think... We would be fools to go about Jesus' mission without adopting Jesus' methods, as if we know better, right? So two things about Jesus here. He was always eating. Luke loves to capture Jesus eating and drinking in his gospel. In Luke 5, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners at Levi's house. In Luke 7, Jesus is anointed during a meal by a sinful woman, as we just read. In Luke 9, Jesus feeds the 5,000. In Luke 10, Jesus eats in the home of Mary and Martha. In Luke 11, Jesus condemns the Pharisees and the teachers of the law at a meal. In Luke 14, Jesus is at a meal when he tells people to throw parties and to invite the poor rather than just your friends. 
In Luke 19, as we read today, Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house for a meal. Luke 22, the Last Supper. Luke 24, post-resurrection, Jesus eats with two of his disciples in Emmaus and then later with the disciples in Jerusalem. To quote Robert Karras, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. We like this Jesus, don't we? So he's accused of being a drunkard and a glutton, and while he isn't either of those things because he never sinned, he at least got that reputation honestly. He was always seen eating and drinking. The second thing about Jesus is he's always hanging out with the wrong crowd, isn't he? At least he's always hanging out with people who make religious people mad, who religious people would say are the wrong crowd. And so the accusations that he's a glutton and a drunkard because he came eating and drinking, that's one thing. But what else? He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And that first accusation was false. But this second accusation is 100% true. Just after saying this thing we're talking about here, the whole son of man came eating and drinking thing, we just read he eats at a Pharisee's house. And a woman of the city who was a sinner, and we can assume here she's likely a prostitute, she comes in because Jesus is there and she weeps and she wets his feet with her tears and she wipes them with her hair, which is down, another sign in that culture that she was probably a prostitute. And she kisses his feet and she anoints them with perfume. And the Pharisee says, if Jesus, if he just knew, if he was really a prophet and he knew what this woman was like, he would know the depths of her sinfulness. He would know what kind of woman was touching him. And this woman, she loved Jesus. She was comfortable with Jesus. Last week, if you were here, you remember, and if you joined us online, you don't remember because you didn't hear any of it. Um, no, actually you did. It was the video. You would, you would have heard this part. Uh, we played that story where Gare Jones reluctantly told people in that club in L.A. that he was planting a church. And, and that one woman that was with him, she looked at him uh, after he said he was planting a church. And, and he described her as if she, he described her look as if she was in the presence of someone who was going to judge her. That must have been her understanding or her lived experience of Christians. But this woman, this woman in this story, she actually showed up at a dinner where she knew people would judge her because Jesus was there and she knew he wouldn't judge her. May we be just like him. She understood Jesus to a level that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law did not. Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It's who he is. And he ends, going back to verse 35, by saying, Wisdom is justified by all her children, which I love. Or in the translation we read today, wisdom is vindicated by all her children. It's like our modern saying, like the proof is in the pudding. Like Jesus is saying, my methods will be proved right by the fruit that they bear. Look at the woman in Luke 7. Look at Zacchaeus. Jesus mixing it up with sinners most of the time around a table and their lives are changed. This, this is like Jesus saying, call me a drunkard, call me a glutton, criticize who I hang out with, call me unclean, say I'm a sinner just like the people I came to save, but look at the fruit of what I'm doing and tell me it isn't working. You can't. I'm changing lives with my ministry. 
And so our mission is to join Jesus in his mission to seek and save the lost, to pursue the people who are far from God and who are looking for him anywhere but a Sunday morning church service. And this means that we're going to have to leverage our everyday, ordinary lives for the sake of Jesus' great commission to go into all the world, including Lake Township, and make disciples. Our vision for how this is done, our method for achieving this end, it's the same as Jesus's. We call it forming redemptive relationships with those who are far from God. On paper, our vision statement is to follow Jesus's lead in forming redemptive relationships with people who are far from God. Here's the thing. Jesus had a method. He had a method, and it worked, and it was brilliant. And if you don't like Jesus's method, I don't know what to tell you because he's kind of the dude we follow. If you'd rather hand out tracks at the mall or, like I saw yesterday, stand on the corner of Apple Grove with big signs that say, ye must repent, ye must be born again, uh, in King James English, right? If you'd rather do that, I'm not telling you that it's wrong, but I just wouldn't claim for it to be Jesus' method. Jesus came and sat at the table and identified with people who religious people turned their noses up at. And we must do the same, and we must corporately do that. We have meals, and we eat together, and I hope you invite people around you, people in your circle to this community who have never otherwise felt comfortable at or with the church. But you all, too, as people of the table, it's, it's for you to go out and utilize your everyday lives for the sake of of the gospel, for gospel purposes, intentionally creating spaces around tables for people who don't know Jesus yet. Places around your table, the one in your dining room, or theirs, or your table in the break room at work, or at your school, or at your dorm room, or at restaurants, or bars, or coffee shops. And I would call that, in a word, hospitality. I'd call that hospitality. Now, hospitality means many things to many people. Hospitality is an industry, right? Some people would say they work in the hospitality industry. Hotels and resorts, all of that and more kind of make up this hospitality industry. But hospitality is much more than that. You might also associate it with inviting people into your home, right? And you get out the good plates and you make a time-tested, tried-and-true recipe that always slays, right? You get that perfect jazz playlist going, right? The one curated for just the right amount of time to get you through dessert. And you have cocktails and hors d'oeuvres, or the perfect wine pairing, and then dessert, of course, right? For some of you, that sounds like hospitality. That sounds nice. And that's, it's not bad. It can be part of hospitality, but that's, that's not what it is exactly. The Bible is big on hospitality. The New Testament puts a heavier emphasis on hospitality than the church has, at least in my lived experience of 36 years. The word hospitality, such as you see in Romans 12, 13. Romans 12, 9 through 13 says this in the NIV. It says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice 
hospitality. That word hospitality in the Greek is philoxenia. Philoxenia. This is the antonym of xenophobia. Do you know what xenophobia is? It's the, it's the dislike or prejudice of people from other countries or cultures. But, but the Greek word xenos, where, where that word comes from, means stranger, most literally. Someone who is not a part of your family or your tribe, a stranger. And so xenophobia is the dislike or prejudice against a stranger. Philoxenia, then, is the antonym, which is the love of the stranger, the love of people outside of your family or friend group or tribe or household. So show hospitality. Practice philoxenia, Paul tells the church. This is part of our ethics as Christians. Show love for the stranger, a love for outsiders, a love for people who are hated, a love for people who are on the margins, people who are prejudiced, against. That includes the least of these. It includes the poor, the sick. It includes minorities. It also includes people who are jerks. Jesus didn't just love the woman at the house of the Pharisee. He loved the Pharisees too. It just looked different. But hospitality isn't a suggestion. It isn't a cute like niche gift for people who don't have other gifts. It is a real gift and it is a command too. We see it in Hebrews 13, 1 through 3. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. And those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. He says, do not forget to show hospitality. It's one of the markers of the Christian faith. In fact, in the past, he says, some have welcomed angels when they've done it. I don't claim to understand that. I would also not say that should be your motivation for offering hospitality. Like, we might get an angel this time if we just keep inviting people over, right? Uh, But but you never know. Um, Here's another great one. 1 Timothy 3. Here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. This is talking about the qualifications of an elder. This is how you should be if you're going to lead in God's church. Above reproach, okay. Faithful to his wife, okay. Yeah, that, is, that one is good. Surely you need to step back from leadership if you're cheating on your wife and get that figured out. That's fair. What else? Self-control, okay. Respectable, hospitable, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Now, I've seen all those things go south for pastors, meaning I've seen pretty much all of them or can fathom uh, that at least if they fail in those categories, they aren't going to be leading until it gets rectified. All of them but one. Hospitality. 
all about hospitality. If you were caught in an affair, you are not going to be an elder or a pastor at your church anymore, I'm sure. If you are violent, right, you are going to get confronted by your church, I would, I would hope, before you hurt somebody. But what about hospitality? It's said in the same breath. It's in God's word in this same list. I, it's, dare I say, as important as, as marital fidelity in terms of being a leader in the church. It's on the same list, at least. Don't get drunk. Be faithful in your marriage. Also, be hospitable, right? And I've known leaders who haven't been good at hospitality. I've known a leader, in fact, whose house multiple people had claimed we just never really felt wanted in there one time, really. That is not the kind of disposition that propels our gospel forward in our culture. We must be hospitable people. And if you hear that and you are just in pain over the idea of being hospitable, the biblical authors knew that it wouldn't be easy for everyone. It isn't like they, they had like this different culture where hospitality was somehow just no problem for people, right? First Peter 4, 7-9 through 9 says this, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. As if Peter had heard our groans and our eye rolls, he says, offer hospitality. Not only that, but offer it without grumbling. Practice hospitality with a willing and joyful heart. Be glad to welcome people. And I know so many of you are because I've experienced it in your homes. A few things about hospitality here as we prepare to close for, for sort of how you can live this out in your family, in your home. First of all, hospitality isn't just for married people and it's not just something practiced from couple to couple. I think there's this myth to be dispelled about hospitality that it's for married people or that it's for homeowners. If that's in your head, please hear me say it is not. Um, I want to brag about my friend Joe for a second. He is a single guy. I know you're thinking, how on earth is that possible? Me too. But I've watched him open his home to people at minimum every other week for four or five years now. And he's absolutely incredible at it. And here's the thing. Him doing that on its own does not make him hospitable. I've been in the home of people many times, again, where I did not feel they wanted me there or that I did not feel like they wanted me there for very long, at least. I've seen Joe uh, sit with guys who showed up, till, showed up at 6.30 and, and sit with them till 10.30, 11.30. And when you're in his house, you can stay that long because you know you are welcome there. You can feel that welcome, that hospitality. And the only way I know people are there that long, because I might text them and say, hey man, Bible study was really great tonight. Thanks for doing it. And I'll wake up the next morning to a text that said, sorry, so-and-so just left, and it'll be like long after I went to bed. And I'm like, man, this guy is way more hospitable than I am. He is incredible. Hospitality, not just for married people, not just for couples. You, at whatever stage of life you're in, at whatever age you're in, you can practice hospitality. Next thing. Hospitality isn't limited to having people in your home. Jesus never invited anyone to his house. Doesn't that kind of mess with you when you think about that? Jesus never, you know, invited anyone to his house. Hospitality is a requirement of leaders in the church. Jesus is the head pastor, the true head pastor of the entire church in the whole world. He's clearly the most hospitable 
most hospitable person to ever exist. Didn't have a house. Invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house for dinner in the one story. You can be a person of welcome even if you're homeless. So if you're a college student, you don't have to wait until you graduate or move into a house or move into at least a less, less grungy apartment. Like, you've got a dorm room, right? And you eat lunch in a dining hall. Or if you work somewhere where you have a lunch table in the break room, I imagine, right? Or, or other people's parties, right? Someone's throwing a big thing, and, and you can ask the host, hey, I have this friend, and I really want to connect them to good people that I love. Can I bring them with me? Or if you're leading a Bible study, you have a chance for hospitality. We have meals here every other week. Are you, are you being hospitable? It says to show hospitality to the saints, not just people who don't yet believe. So how are you being hospitable here with, with these people in this room this morning? Have you noticed someone here who doesn't seem that well-connected or who you've never really gotten to know? Ask them to sit with you at our next meal. Make it a thing. Next, hospitality isn't the gospel, but the gospel is much more easily heard from a hospitable person. You're not going to welcome someone into your house for years probably and have them ask just randomly to pray the sinner's prayer with you or whatever, right? Hospitality isn't the gospel. There are non-Christian people who are unbelievably and extraordinarily gracious and hospitable. But your gospel message is much easier heard when it's paired with welcome. You speaking about the welcome of God while shooing people out of your door is going to possibly provide some cognitive dissonance, right? Welcome people because God has welcomed us in Christ. And lastly, you can start now. Invite someone to your house. You have a home? Great. Leverage it for the gospel. Invite someone who doesn't know the Lord, who you haven't really welcomed into your home before, to your home. It's a great way to begin a relationship that could be ripe for gospel conversations, whether the person is a cultural Christian or a product of a post-Christian environment. No one is ever offended by the offer of your best dish. Don't have a home or, or can't get comfortable having someone in? Invite someone to dinner out. Go to a restaurant. Plan to sit there for a while. Get to know each other. Ask a lot of questions. Listen really well. If you can pick up the tab do it. If you can't, don't. doesn't matter. That's not a prerequisite of hospitality. Hospitality doesn't have to cost you much, especially if you have people over. It costs you your time. That's what it ultimately costs you. That's the biggest investment is your time, and it's a worthy investment. If you're bold, you can even follow your rabbi Jesus and invite yourself over to someone else's house for dinner and somehow still be a person of hospitality, but I have no advice on how to navigate that. So if you do, maybe we'll have you up here in the future to explain how you kind of navigate that situation. Invite someone to your lunch table. As a, as a student or a person who works at a place where other people work, which before COVID was everyone, now it's much less than everyone. If that's you, you have a lunch table. Steward your lunch table well for the gospel. Don't let people eat alone at your work. Make plans to have people sit with you. Make off-the-cuff invites to people who look like they need it. Make your lunch hour or half an hour your hour of ministry. And holidays. We have holidays coming up. 
growing up, I, I wasn't taught this. I just had it in my head that holidays were like such a family time that unless you had a significant other that you would never dream of inviting someone outside the family to a meal. Now I love the opportunity to invite people from outside of the family to those meals. It's a great opportunity. What's more hospitable to say on the biggest family days of the year that you, who are not my family, you are welcome at the table with my family. What better way is there to mirror the actions of a God who made us, who are not family, family? Michelle, you can come up. So what I, so what I would encourage you this morning to do is to not let the calendar turn on 2023 to 2024 before you practice hospitality. Who can you be invitational to? Who can you add to your lunch table crew? What restaurant has the best seasonal specials that you can meet up with a new friend at? Might I recommend table six? Or maybe it's time to dust off that favorite recipe and just have someone from church over, someone that you're not real close to yet. So here's my challenge. Can you, in the next 45 days of 2023, practice hospitality towards someone who doesn't yet know the love of God in Christ? And maybe, maybe if you're feeling really up for a challenge in the next 45 days, also show hospitality to someone in this room or somebody who's not here this morning, but is usually in this room. So think about it, pray about it, discuss it with your spouse on the way home if you're a married person before you make that invite and then put it into action. We practice welcome and hospitality because God has welcomed us into his family in the ultimate act of hospitality. He welcomes us to his table this morning as we remember that Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took the bread and after he broke it, he gave thanks saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and again giving thanks, he said, this is a new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. This morning, right here, Jesus welcomes you to his table to come and remember what God did for you in his death and resurrection. And so we take communion every week by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup. Uh, my friends Randy and Rachel will be on either side of the room ready to pray for anyone who would like someone to come alongside them in prayer. I would encourage you to do that this morning. And then as you prepare for communion, I would just encourage you again to take a moment and just ask God this question. Who are you asking me to take a step of hospitality towards? Who are you asking my family to invite for dinner? Who is it that I need to ask to sit with me at lunch or whatever it is? Who can I take a step to being hospitable towards before this year ends? Let's pray. Father, you are the ultimate standard of hospitality, welcoming us while we were still enemies, welcoming us. And now we get to welcome other people. And so often that seems hard or like we don't have time for it or like it's a hassle, but it's, it's ultimately a blessing and an opportunity and something you've asked of us. And so may we as an act of service to you um, just give up uh, a, a night of, of dinner at home alone or uh, maybe a, a an afternoon of quiet at our lunch table. Whatever it is, may we offer that up to you and, and give it to you for your purposes. And would you give us joy um, in serving you that way? Would you 
help hospitality to become part of our character, part of who we are, something that we love? And ultimately, would you reconcile people to yourself through it? Our lives are all for you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to our Sunday service. If you're interested in joining us in the future, you can find us at 17766 Cleveland Avenue Northwest on Sunday mornings at 10. Additionally, we host a meal every first and third Sunday after service in order to fellowship with one another. Visit aseatforyou.org for more information. We hope you'll join us next week. Go in peace.